Hey, good morning. Before I get into the talk this morning, I want to just ask you about a couple of things. Number one, I want to ask you to think about what you're going to do on Palm Sunday if you're a new springer, because we go to three weekend services and the times adjust so that we can, we can fit those in. And um, one thing that we've learned at New Spring is that there's always one service on Sunday that's just really, really difficult to handle because it gets packed and every seat just about's taken. It takes, in fact, I remember talking to a young lady who lived downtown in a condo and I saw her in the overflow area and she said it took her as long to get from downtown to the K96 21st Street inter, inter, intersection took her the same length of time to get from downtown to there as it took to get from that intersection inside the, the parking lot. And so you guys know that New Spring is calibrated to invite in people who might not be spiritually resolved or maybe, maybe not even religious. And so we want to make sure that it's, it's reasonably feasible to attend New Spring. And so we're adding a new service. And I should, this is more than you want to know, perhaps, but it's really important to me. We'd actually gotten to the place in a couple of our, in, in our two Sunday services where we actually had to cap some preschool classes because we'd reached capacity. Isn't it terrible to be able to say we can't take any more four-year-olds? And so we added, we added a third service. And it'll start on Palm Sunday. And the times change to 8.45, 10.15, and 12 p.m. Now, I was born at night, but not last night. And my instincts tell me that 10.15 service is going to be really, 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 really popular, okay? So I, I've got an ask that I want to make of new springers who love, love what we're all about here. And that is to contemplate moving to one of those two outside services at 8.45 or 12 o'clock, and if, and if you can do that, I would love the 12 o'clock service. I'm not a morning person, so uh, I, I would love that 12 o'clock service. But whatever, whatever service that you think about, if you're, if you're a really dyed-in-the-little-new-springer and you love what we're all about, if you could make that 8.45 or, or 12 or even Saturday night with five weekend services, with so many good choices. So think about that. I appreciate that. All starts Palm Sunday. Actually, Easter weekend, we will have six services, and one of those services will be on Friday evening. And I tell you that because in the past, we've had a Good Friday service. We're going to cover Good Friday material on Palm Sunday. On the Friday night, it will just be another Easter service. So it'll be full-blown New Spring experience, same weekend talk, same Easter talk, Kids World up and running. Everything that's normally the New Spring experience will be Friday evening. And that's going to be important to a lot of you, especially who are young adults, and you're going to need to travel to be with your family on Easter. You won't have to miss Easter at New Spring because we'll be here Friday night for you. So that's Friday night. Think about that. That's a, that's a great new experience. And then one more thing. I know that it's really hard to get out of the parking lot. You need to know that there's, there's another entrance and exit beside the one at, on 21st Street. There's a back entrance here that goes into the Fairmont neighborhood and then exits out um, on 127th. But if you take that exit and you drive through Fairmont. We want to make sure that we're really, really good neighbors. A lot of young families back there with small kids. And so really, really be extra careful as you go through the Fairmont. We want to, we want to be a good friend and good neighbors to all who are there. And, um, and just in case the carrot was not enough to let you know, WPD is going to be back there. And they love us. But if they see you doing something naughty, I just want you to know what's going to happen. All right, let's get down to business. Why doesn't religion work? Because it would seem like it should. You know, you, you guys are always accustomed to hearing me say I hate religion. And, but even I, I'm going to have to admit that religions start with good intentions. Oftentimes, religions start with truth. If you've ever been part of a religious system, my guess is that you've learned a lot of truth. And beyond that, if you'll allow me to employ quotation marks, there are a lot of good teachings in all religions. 
If you're talking about helpful habits, I obviously disagree strongly with the premise of Islam, but I would have to be the first to admit that in Islam, there are healthy habits that are taught to their people. So I would... I don't know that much about world religions. I've done some study, some research, but my guess is that if you'll allow me once again to use quotation marks, because by good, I don't mean acceptable to God. I mean good in the sense of productive, beneficial, helpful in our culture, that all religions have some good practices taught. And then there are some areas of concentricity. There are some areas where pretty much all the world's religions agree on a particular thing. Pretty much all the world's religions agree that it's wrong to steal. Or it's wrong to take someone who is not your spouse and have sex with her. A woman who is married to another man or a man who is married to another woman to get into a sexual relationship with that person. I think pretty much most, if not all, the world's religions, so that's, that's the wrong thing. And we could go down the list of those areas of concentricity where, where the world's religions agree. And some who've, in America who have uh, taken comparative religion classes at the university have said, well, maybe my religion is going to be to take the best elements out of all the world's religions, and I'm going to make my own religion. But if you were here last week, you see that is exactly the problem that we have with God. Whether you're religious or secular, whatever, the idea is we all want to make our own religion, and the Bible says it doesn't get us anywhere. But why doesn't religion work? Because here's the thing. I think people in religions try very hard. I grew up in a, in a religious system, and I learned many good things, and there were many well-intentioned people, and, and I appreciate the teaching that I got within that system. But frankly, I'm still trying to shake a lot of it, a lot of that stuff out of the little hair that I have left. And so why doesn't it work if intentions are good and good habits are involved and there are areas of agreements among religions? Well, it's interesting to me that the answer to these, this question, why religion doesn't work, is found in the Bible. I have said last week in this series, Heavy Duty, Bolt Down Tight, that if I had three weeks to talk, I know the three talks that I would give. I would bring you a talk from Romans 1, which I brought you last week. I bring you a talk from Romans 2, which you're going to hear today. And then next week, I get to bring you what is the most exciting talk that I can ever imagine. I get to talk to you out of Romans 3. It is interesting to me that in Romans chapter 2, God does an autopsy in religion. God does an analysis of why religion does not work. And he leaves us with three overwhelmingly undefeatable arguments as to why religion does not work. Do you find it interesting that the Bible is what tells us why religion doesn't work? Let's go back to chapter 1, and you don't have to look back if you don't want to, but if you were here last week... You heard me give this talk. If you weren't here last week, let me just kind of coach you up on what was going on. Romans is like a legal case for the gospel. When I talk to my lawyer friends who are exploring faith, the first thing I do is I put them in the book of Romans because Romans is just like a legal case laid out. It's almost as if Paul, it, he was a lawyer before his conversion. It is as if Paul is standing in the courtroom making a case for the gospel, and as he lays out the case, he begins to talk about the secular world and its issues with God, how the secular world stands condemned before God because they have ruled God as a not useful hypothesis. And Paul says, if, when you don't want to think about God, then the lights go off, and eventually God gives up on that person, and they get into all kinds of conduct that is bad. And so he lists all kinds of conduct in Romans chapter 1. He talks about sexual wrong sexual sin. He talked about 
greed, he talks about envy, he talks about quarrelsome nature, hard to get along with, disobedient to parents, homosexuality, he saw the list. He just gets in this long, long list of, of stuff that people get into when they rule God out. And so Paul, as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he sort of understands that in this courtroom, there are secular people who are saying, I don't necessarily like that because I don't think I need fixing. I think I'm okay. And Paul is saying, look, if you persist in that, you're going to run into the anger of God. And also in the courtroom, Paul understands there are religious people that all through Romans chapter 1 are saying, yeah, 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 give it to them, give it to them. Yeah, they're wrong. They're bad. They're going to hell. And Paul says, okay, now we're going to talk to you. You, therefore, that's chapter 2 people. This is not the secular person. This is the religious person who is saying, give it to them. They're going to hell. You, therefore, have no excuse. Well, that's interesting language because in Romans chapter 1, God says, if you don't believe in him, you don't have any excuse. He only calls one witness, and that's nature. And God says nature proves his existence and his personality. Nature is so extravagant that it proves the reality of God. It is so beneficial to us that it proves the goodness of God. So God has said to the secular world, you're without excuse. And the religious person is saying, yeah, of course you're without excuse. And God said, okay, Mr. Religious Person, you therefore have no excuse. Huh? I have an excuse. I'm a religious person. I'm a good person. I think I'm pretty good. I, I, there are rules associated with my religion. I've jumped through those hoops. I've been to those classes. I've sat through those sermons. I've given that money. I've done this service. What do you mean, God? I have no excuse. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. When are we going to get that through our heads? Because it's like we always get shocked every time we hear a scandal in the religious community. Because somebody in the religious community that we looked up to is, you know, Ted Hackard. If you're old, Jimmy Swaggart. I mean, just go down the list. I mean, God is saying, okay, Mr. Religious Person, you got your finger out there, you're wagging your finger, you're saying, secular guy, you're without excuse, you do all these bad things. God is saying, okay, Mr. Religious Guy, you're in the same trouble because you do the same things. Here is the first religion, and this is very clear from this text. Here is the first reason religion does not work. Religion cannot make you a good person. And here is the issue. We are broken at such a deep place, religion cannot get there to fix it. Whether you're a religious person, you've been in church all your life as I, or you're a secular person and you have no even, even used to even think about God, one thing where we can all come together and be shoulder to shoulder is we're both broken at the same place. The same junk you want to do, I want to do. Same temptations you have, maybe not exactly the same, but I mean, all of us have temptations, and so God is saying, okay, religious person, you're wagging your finger. I want you to know you have no excuse because you're broken at the same place. Religion cannot fix you at the place where you're broken. It's a shame we don't get it because it's one of the first lessons in the Bible. The very first religious exercise in the Bible is Cain bringing an offering to God. Cain is the third person on our planet. He was the son of Adam and Eve. And I don't know why, but at some point Cain decides to do a religious act. He brings an offering to God. Cain was a farmer, so he did what was natural. He brought the work of his hands. He brought vegetables. I don't know what he brought God. Beets, turnips, squash, celery. 
But anyway, he brought it out there and laid it before God and said, God, I have brought you an offering. And yet in, Cain, in Genesis 4, 3, the Bible says Cain brought an offering to God for the produce of his farm. But Cain and his offering didn't get his approval. Cain, what's the matter? In fact, Cain got really upset about this. Why will you not accept me? I did something religious. I, I made an overture to you, God. And yet God said, no, I'm not going to set you. Accept it, Cain. Because see, Cain, you got a little problem called murder in your heart. And you're broken at a place that carrots won't fix. You're broken at a place that church attendance can't fix. And I, and I hope, you, hope you keep coming to church because it's a, it's a means to an end. But I just want you to know, church attendance cannot fix you where you're broken. Doing community service, doing religious service, it cannot fix you. It's a good thing to do. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not knocking. It's, it's, it's a good thing to do, but it won't fix you where you're broken. Going to a class and learning rules and catechisms and baptisms, if they're, in, you know, if they're in the right environment, they're helpful perhaps, but they won't fix you where you're broken. You're just broken at a place where celery and carrots and beets just can't fix. I'm talking to somebody here, and listen, I've got the shirt. You've tried very hard to be a good Baptist. And I'm not knocking Baptists because there are many good, many good teachings. And I learned many good things as a Baptist very grateful but I'm talking to some of you I'm talking about in the systematic way you tried to be a really good Baptist or whatever you want to call it Methodist Presbyterian Catholic Hindu Buddhist whatever you tried very hard you said I am gonna do what's asked of me I mean after all it's an institutional environment the environment looks very official there is a guy up there in a suit and tie, robe, collar, whatever. Here's a person up there that's standing up there for God. Kind of freaks me out, scares me to death. They play a big organ. <laughs> blows all the dust out of the air vents. Man, there's got to be something here. And you say, I'm going to do it. I, I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what they asked me to do. But then I, I just want to ask you, did, did, did you ever come to where I, I came and what you just said, I can't do it. I mean, it's funny, but it's not funny, but it, it, it's ironic that you get to this place where you have these two emotions that govern you. On a good day, even though you would never articulate this, if you ever have the question, am I all right with God? Yeah, I'm all right with God because I'm a good Baptist. <laughs> I would say that, but it's in my thinking. I'm all right with God. I'm a good Catholic. I'm all right with God. I'm a good, I'm a good Muslim. I'm okay. And if, see, if things are going okay, then, then that's great. But all of a sudden, Mark has a really bad day where something really ugly comes up in his head. And I find myself thinking something I can't believe a good Baptist would think. And I realize that no matter how many hoops I've jumped through and no matter how many classes I've been to, I'm just broken at a place that can't be fixed. And I say to myself, I am never going to get there. It's like the carrot just keeps getting further and further out. See, is God has just been real straight with us here in Romans chapter 2. You're just broken in a place religion can't fix. Now before we go to number two, let's ask the question. Let's set this up. What do you do when you learn you can't ever get there? What do you do when you learn that you can never be good enough? I usually hit that thought if you grew up in church. usually hit that thought about junior high, high school. And in case that's not enough, when you get to college, you're just like... You can do one of two things. Either you're going to throw it down, you're going to say, hey, it doesn't work. I'm going to go back to chapter 1 and be a secular saint. Man, I know people outside, they're hell raisers. They're better than people inside the church. 
So I just said it doesn't work. I tried it. I tried it. I was really sincere. I went to camp through my stick in the fire. I mean, I, I, I did all the stuff. I, I, I've got the shirts. I mean, I've been on the tours. I've been to the concerts. I mean, I've done it all. And it didn't get me anywhere. And I can't change. I can't be any better. It's not fixing me. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave the church. And so many of you at New Spring, you came back to New Spring because you just want to be in a place that wasn't about religion, didn't you? Because you knew, you knew when you walked in the door, religion can't fix you. You'd already learned that. The second bad thing that happens when a person comes to a place where he or she knows that religion can't fix them is that they, 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 they're in the system and they don't want to leave the system because they got friends there. And on top of that, there are other people who think that they really are okay because their dysfunction doesn't necessarily show up in the one hour that they're at church. And so they're thinking, good night, I've got this reputation, I got, you know, I got this, people on the street think I'm a religious person, but I got this dysfunction in my life, so you know what I got to do at that point? I got to develop loopholes and cover-ups. Now go back to the text with me for just a moment, because the question was asked that we saw a few moments ago. God was saying, why do you point your finger, chapter 2, guy, gal? Why do you point your finger at somebody else when you've got the same problems yourself? The only way I can point my finger at you if you're doing the same thing that I'm doing is I've got to figure out some way why the same thing you're doing, the thing you're doing, is not the same thing I'm doing. I have to rename it. See, for you, it's greed. For me, it's just taking care of myself. For you, it's, it's lust. For me, it's, well, I'm a guy. So I've got to develop loopholes. So how do I develop a loophole where I'm okay and you're not? Well, I've got to rationalize. Or the second thing that I do is I cover it up. I say to myself, well... If I say the right things, I'm okay. I don't necessarily do the right things, but if I hold the right positions, I'm okay. I want to go back to our verses one more time. And in my notes, guys, I'm sorry I jumped ahead a little bit, but I'm at Romans chapter 2, verse 1. In Romans chapter 2, verse 1, it says, You may think, therefore, that you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad as you have no, uh, just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they're wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself for you who judge others do the same things. Now let's jump down and read a little bit later on in Romans chapter 2 because here we're going to see about the cover-ups and the loopholes. In Romans 2.17, you boast about your special relationship with him. You know what he wants. You know what is right because you have been taught his law. You are convinced that you're a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God for you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it's wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? See, that's the problem that you find. This is where hypocrisy comes. This is why people look at the church and say hey, there's hypocrisy in the church. They realize that they can't measure up, but in order to stay in the system, they figure out ways where other people's acts or sins, but not theirs, or they say the right things and feel like they're okay, even if they don't do the right things. 
Guys, we should have known from the very beginning that cover-ups don't work. You think about our first parents, Adam and Eve. When they sinned against God, they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. Listen, you can be right on all your positions. All the things that we talked about last week, you can hold the right position on human sexuality. You can hold the right position on money. You can hold the right theological position about God and go on and on and on up and down the list. But holding the right positions will not make you right before God. I want to go now to the third reason why religion doesn't work. By the way, did you know that, and this is a thing that every once in a while someone will say, Mark, why do you say that you hate religion? Do you realize that religion's only mentioned three times in the Bible on three occasions? And all three times it's negative? Twice Paul is talking about the system that he used to be in before he accepted Christ. And once James is saying, he's talking about showy displays of piety. So only three times in the Bible does the Bible even reference religion and all three times it's negative. You know why? Because this is not a book about religion. This is a book about having a relationship with God. But for some of you who grew up in church, I'm about to blow your mind with number three. Folks, religion has never worked. If you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do today, your Bible is divided in two parts. You have the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, or the word covenant means deal. You have the Old Covenant, which is Genesis through Malachi, 39 books. And then you have the New Testament, the New Covenant, the New Deal, which is Matthew through Revelation. Now, there are people who grew up in church who have this misconception that the Old Testament is about law. It is about keeping the law. So Old Testament believers are responsible for keeping the law before God. That the New Testament is about grace, and it is about grace that we find through the death of Jesus Christ for us on the cross. Now, it is true that the law is given in the Old Testament, and it is true that the New Testament is filled with grace. But I want to make one thing very clear from the very beginning. Nobody at any time in history has ever been made right with God, Old Testament or New Testament. Nobody has ever been made right with God by keeping rules or by keeping the law. The law indeed, which is God's rules, is God's laws, they were given in the Old Testament. But here's what I want you to understand. At the very same time that God gave his rules, he also implemented the sacrificial system so that people who broke God's laws could offer sacrifices for their sin. And as a result of that, they could receive atonement. So isn't that interesting that at the very moment when you read the Old Testament, some of you have read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, at the very same time that God gave the rules, he also gave provision for people that he knew could not keep the rules. Let me talk to you about one specific day. There were many sacrifices that they brought. And if you ever wonder, what's the whole deal with the sacrifices? Well, Leviticus tells us the life is in the blood. So when we sin, it brings death. There must be something to give life for death. God wanted us to understand from the very beginning that sin was a serious matter and it had to be paid for. But there was one day in specific that was the most important day on the Jewish calendar, and that, was the, that day was called the Day of Atonement. And I don't want to take you through a whole lot of history here, but let me just walk you through what happened on the Day of Atonement. There was a place of worship called the tabernacle. Later on, it became a permanent structure called the temple. In the middle of the tabernacle, in the middle of the temple, there were two chambers. There was an outer chamber, and then there was an inner chamber, and the inner chamber was called the most holy place. There was a very thick curtain that separated the outer chamber and the most holy place. 
And that curtain was called the veil. Very thick. Josephus says it was four inches thick. On the other side of the veil, there was a piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a 42-inch cubic box with poles on either side because it could not be touched. And even when the priests carried the Ark, they were not to touch the Ark. They were only to touch the poles. poles the Ark had rings on it. The poles slipped through. The Ark was sacred. But what was, the really, what was really special, I guess you could say there were two pieces in the most holy place because the really most important piece was what was called the mercy seat, which was a golden lid that set over the Ark of the Covenant. There were two cherubim, two golden angels that faced each other. And I do not understand this specifically, but the Bible tells us that God's presence would come and sit and be in that most holy place in between the two cherubim on top of the mercy seat. You could say, well, I would love to take a tour of the most holy place. You wonder, did they give three o'clock tours for anybody who wanted to go in the most holy place? The answer to that question is no, because only one person could go into the most holy place, the high priest, and he could not go in there any day except for the day of atonement. Think about this. In this room, this sacred room with the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, the golden cherubim, the place where God's presence dwelt, only one person could go in. How blessed are we when the Bible tells us that God's Holy Spirit lives within us? And we don't just, it's not just one day, and it's not just we have to go through some high priest. You can talk to God anytime you want to. We indeed are blessed. But the high priest, and here is what I find really interesting. The high priest, there were three animals involved with the Day of Atonement. One was a bull, and then there were two lambs. The bull was to be sacrificed for the high priest's sin. I think it's interesting that the preacher had to, sac- had to have the biggest animal to sacrifice for the preacher's sin. So he had to sacrifice the bull, and he had to, you know, offer that blood for his own sin, for his own purification. And then there were two animals, two lambs, and, and here's what would happen. They, they would cast lots and decide which one of the lambs was going to be sacrificed. There was one lamb that would be sacrificed. The other lamb was the scapegoat. And ceremonially, what Aaron or the high priest would do is he would basically confer the sins of the people to the head of the scapegoat. And the scapegoat, or, 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 to the, or to the sacrificial lamb. The scapegoat would also symbolize the holder of sin for the people. And the scapegoat would be led away outside the camp to be lost forever so that people would clearly understand that their sins were taken away. But the animal that was most important was the sacrificial lamb. They would take the blood from the lamb. They would sprinkle the, Aaron, the high priest, would go into the holy place, the most holy place, and sprinkle the blood seven times on the mercy seat. And after that, he would come out before the people, and he would say them, say to them, we're clear another year. I don't know what it was in Hebrew, but that's basically it. <laughs> we're okay for another year. See what I'm saying? It never was rules that made those people right with God. They all were rule breakers. God had to have a day of atonement where the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Now, here's the thing that I want to do for the next few moments as I close out this talk. I want to take you on a Bible journey because you could say, well, Mark, if you get right down to it, wasn't it still a religion? Because after all, the key people couldn't keep the rules, but one of the ceremonies they had was to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. That's sort of a religious thing, isn't it? And, and they were made right with God that way. Al contraire. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. It is, what's this word? Impossible. Not hard, not difficult, not rare. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, these two words, what? To what? Take away sin. See, here's the thing. I have my wallet with me today. We all know what plastic is, don't we? 
We plunk down the plastic, we roll forward the cost. Some of you, if you don't pay for it pretty quick, you start getting 21% interest on it or more. But that's what happens when we put down the plastic, we roll it forward. Well, for all those generations, when the high priest would bring the lambs and sacrifice and sprinkle their blood on the mercy seat, what, the, what was happening at that moment? They were rolling forward sin. It got to be a bigger pile and a bigger pile. And so in the book of Hebrews, the Bible says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But one day John the Baptist was baptizing and he looked up and he saw Jesus on the first day that we read about Jesus in his adult public ministry. And John said this, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who, what's the two words, takes away the sin of the world. See, by this time it's rolled up into a big pile. And on top of that, in the mind of God, all the sins that you and I would commit are part of that pile. And when John, no wonder John was so pumped when he saw Jesus coming. He said, look, there is the Lamb of God who doesn't just roll forward sin or put it on a credit card. There is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, somebody could say, well, I don't know. Let's go on. Let's go to the next one. Somebody could say, uh, I still think I'm going to heaven, Mark. Because I'm pretty good. I, I'm not really bad like Osama bin Laden or somebody like that. I, I think I'm pretty good. I mean, I, I have a few bad days, but I think I'm pretty good. Look at this. That means that anyone who tries to live by his own effort, independent of God, is doomed to failure. Scripture backs this up. Utterly, that utterly means to the extreme. Utterly cursed is every person who fails to carry out every detail written in the book of the law. Well, I am so dead. Because there are like 600 and something of those laws. I don't even remember them all. Let's just go to the Ten Commandments. First commandment, love God with all your heart, mind, soul. I, I don't think I've ever even been there. I mean, I've lived for 55 years in a state of breakage of that first commandment. And honor your father and mother, son, even go there. <laughs> My mother's here. I, can't, I don't have any choice on that one. <laughs> I can say, well, I've never committed adultery. But then Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her. And there's that one. Well, I've never killed anybody. Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother without a cause, the same thing as murder. It's on the same paint chip. Man, the honest truth is, I don't think I've kept a single one of the commandments. And I just read, utterly cursed is every person who fails to carry out every detail written in the book of the law. How are you feeling about your religion right now? <laughs> the obvious impossibility of carrying out such a moral program should make it plain that no one can sustain a relationship with God that way. The person who lives in a right relationship with God does it by embracing what God arranges, what God arranges for him or her. 
Not what I arrange for God. See, that's what religion says. Religion says get it all together, get your stuff together, and arrange it and present it to God. And the Bible says we're not made right with what we arrange for God. We're made right because of what God arranges for us. The person who believes God is set right with God. And that's the real life. Rule keeping, and all of us who have been in religion, we can say yes to this. Rule keeping does not naturally involve into living by faith, but only perpetuates itself into more and more rule keeping. Christ redeemed us. Not being a Baptist, Christ redeemed us from that self-defeating, cursed life by absorbing it completely into himself. Do you remember the scripture that says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree? That is what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He became a curse and at the same time dissolved the curse. And now because of that, the air is cleared. you realize he came and lived the life that was up to every detail of the law. He did for us what we could not do. He had the only uncursed life. And then he took that precious, spotless, uncursed life, just like the lamb whose blood was shed and sprinkled on the mercy seat. He took that perfect life, laid down a cross, took our curse for us, and absorbed it into himself so that he could clear the air between us and God. Don't. Tell me a religion can do that. It so can't do that. Which is why Paul starts his book by saying, I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. I mean, Paul is saying, if I'm in, if I'm in the university classroom and I'm surrounded by secularism, I, I'm not ashamed of the good news about Jesus here. Or if I go to church... And at church, they're teaching a religion, and Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel here. Why is it, Paul? I mean, why is it you're an intellectual? You're, you're a bright guy. You were once a secular megastar. You were once a religious rock star. I mean, Paul, why is it that you're not ashamed of this good news about Jesus? He said, because it is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished start to finish by faith. As the scripture says, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. So many times I've talked to people, maybe on an airplane, maybe at Starbucks, at church sometimes. And I'll talk to a person and say, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? Even Christians. Yeah. I think I'm pretty good. I go to church. What I'm about to say right now, I'm not sure I could ever say anything more important than what I'm about to say. Remember our series is Bolt Down Tight. This is no place to be flabby in your thinking. So much depends upon what you believe. I am going to encourage you from the word of God to cut loose any confidence you have in your own resume, in your own God resume. Anything that you think is good enough to commend you to God, take out the mental scissors and cut it loose and let it go. All of us have learned many good things in religion, and we want to cherish those things and want to be thankful for the good intentioned people who taught us those things. But as far as holding on to religion, to make you right with God, I want to encourage you to take out the scissors 
cut it loose. And with nothing left other than your own dysfunction and brokenness, come to God, cursed because we can't keep every detail of the law with empty hands. Whether you're the secular person, or maybe you're a natural-born hellraiser, or you're a church kid from day one, come to God with empty hands and a broken heart and say to Jesus, thank you for taking the curse from me. I put all my confidence in you. One, an old hymn says it best, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross of Christ I cling. When you come to that place, you can accept what God has arranged for you and you can be made right with God. You don't make yourself right with God. You don't hand God a resume and God accepts it. You come broken, as all of us are. You come broken and put all your confidence in Jesus. I brought you to a place now where if you've never really done that, because some of us here have never put any confidence in Jesus, it's always been in what we do or in our religion, many of us have a hybrid going on. We have some confidence in Jesus and some confidence in ourselves. And the reason why I know that is when you don't live up to expectations, oh no, am I going to hell? You still haven't got it yet. It's all your confidence in Jesus. And here's the interesting thing. It's when you do that that he brings the power into you to live the life that you can't live. Not perfection, but he brings the power to change, the power to grow. Because life is inside of you, not religion, life. Would you be willing to do that today? I'm going to pray a prayer. These aren't magic words, but these are just words that reach out to Jesus and ask for the gift. And if you want to join me, you can do it right now. You ready? Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I come with empty hands, not holding on to my good things, not holding on to my religion. I come broken to Jesus. I believe that Jesus died for me and his blood paid for my sins. And I believe he arose from the grave as King of kings and Lord of lords. And today, I put all my confidence in him and him alone. Thank you for arranging my rightness with you through Jesus. In Jesus' name.